I'm Iris Ng, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Good evening, Ilya. Hey, good evening, Ben. You are a director, a producer, and a podcast host. And you are a fine proprietor of camera-related gear and actual cameras at Hot Rod Cameras, which everyone should go check out at hotrodcameras.com right now. Wow. Hey, hey thank, thank you for the nice plug. If they didn't miss the British lady, uh, say it on the way in. So <laughs> that's great. We have a really cool show today. Uh, on the show today, we have Iris Ng, who is uh, a phenomenal cinematographer of primarily documentaries, but she does super personal documentaries. And then she also shot the blockbuster documentary from Netflix, Making a Murderer Season 1, which is... You know, we've all seen it. It was total uh, water cooler fodder for the longest time. But uh, she's got a really fascinating take on uh, personal documentary stuff. I can't wait for people to hear her interview. And and she's just a, a really, really nice person. I met her at Sundance this year, and uh, I had seen her previous uh, documentary work on Shirkers, which I really liked. I love and Shirkers. I, if anyone hasn't already, go see Shirkers on Netflix. If you have Netflix, it's a brilliant documentary. Definitely worth seeing. And very uh, personal. What I love about her work is how personal it gets. Like it really, you you really get a, a strong sense of the person you're dealing with. And I, I don't know. I mean, it's intimate, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. Iris has a fantastic career, and I don't think that uh, she's quite the household name yet, but she is well on her way, and I know she definitely comes up in in conversations, uh, at least around uh, Hollywood, about uh, people who are doing uh, really good work and we should be paying attention to. So, um, hey, Ben, let's uh, let's dive right into the uh, the close focus. Let's, yeah, you, because uh, you, uh, we, we were pitching back various ideas, and I was pitching a thing about post, but I think we're going to hold on to that idea until next week, probably, uh, because DaVinci Resolve 17 is about to come out but you've got some umbrage you you got something you want to get off your chest well i i mean i I don't really know how best to do it i'll just dive right in but i I gotta say that in the era of individual celebrities the Mm -hmm. uh the influencer sort of space uh i I feel like everyone's pitching their course they're pitching their program like oh you got to pay money to learn what it is that i have to teach you and there are places that are set up actually for uh, for schools, uh, you know, for you to learn actual things. So, of course, for the film industry, one of the most famous is NYU, always highly, highly ranked. Uh, Probably NYU. In, the, in the top four film schools in the country since film schools were a thing. Yeah, uh, very uh, prestigious list of uh, graduates. I know whenever I hear someone went to NYU, I, my ears perk up. I'm like, hmm. And even, even though here in L.A. we've got UCLA and USC, which are both top rate film schools and afi and, and afi of and, course yeah uh but uh, like it, there's there's some mystique around nyu for me personally I, I i can't explain what it is maybe it's just uh the the people who come from the gritty hard scrabble streets of new york to make movies out of dirt and grime well, uh, I mean, and there's a, a prestigious list of, of dropouts of people who uh, who went to who went they went there and was like, you know what, I, I can't do this anymore, and then they, they and they left and went on to having incredible careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I came across this uh, <laughs> website called Yellow Brick, and Yellow Brick, uh, I mean, look, I don't know these people. They're trying to make a buck, but mm-hmm. they've 
what they do essentially is it looks like in different parts of uh, sort of like maybe the creative art universe, they come up with programs to get people who are interested in all kinds of things like sneaker design or music mm-hmm. or, or whatever it is to sign up to take these classes, these essential classes. And now they've done it for the film and television industry. And I want to take I, their I, course I, on drop in sick beats. <laughs> Well, you you probably could. Well, this this class that that was prominently advertised on IndieWire, they they wrote an article about it. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's co-sponsored by IndieWire and Rolling Stone magazine, who I believe have the same parent company, if I'm not mistaken. But they're doing a thing called Film and Television Industry Essentials, and they promote it as like this incredible thing. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious. I like to click on things. I've, so I I've got on a it. Film and TV Industry Essential thing. Basically, it's just an executive screaming, "Go fuck yourself in your face" for ten straight <laughs> hours. And if you can take it, you can take this business. You, that's right. You can take it. Your skin is thick enough to work to work in the I will only Go charge fuck $20,000 for this course. Anyway. <laughs> you know, I, I tell you, I'm personally way more interested in the David Lynch Film School, which is a real thing. You can get like a master's degree from David Lynch Film School and he does scholarships. It's probably just like how to transcendentally meditate. And I'm sure that's like, what it that's is. But I just it. would, I kind of love to have that on my resume more than to say I have a non... You, uh, non- I mean, <laughs> of, of the filmmakers who have their own film school, the one that I want to take is Werner Herzog, to oh, nobody's yes. surprise at all. Werner like, Herzog. Yeah, yeah. His, his is like teaches, like, you know, you have to go like be a bouncer or, you know, you have to like read a book about birds. Like, I, I just think that uh, Werner Herzog, I, I, I love his outlook on life and his, his approach to stuff. David Lynch is so individual. I mean, so is Werner Herzog for that matter. But Werner Herzog is sort of like encouraging, like any any moron can do this. It seems to be his his uh, <laughs> rallying cry to a degree, and uh, and he's just such a profound and interesting person. I could listen to him talk about anything. Whereas David Lynch kind of has that pinched nasal voice, so I'd rather listen to Herzog teach me, even if it's the exact same curriculum, which it isn't. Yeah, 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 well, I, I think I said it before, but it's like the ratatouille, like anyone can cook type of thing. So it's like mm-hmm. anyone can make a film. Well, uh, this this program, uh, which you can find on the, the yellowbrick.co website, it's the, they kind of have an NYU landing page as well. But uh, they put Judd Apatow and Ang Lee right up front and center like, hey, these people will teach you. Mm. And, and maybe it's true. Uh, but nowhere on that page can I find. Wait, so the the director of Gemini Man and This Is Forty, I can learn how to make films from those two people. Yes, indeed, Great. supposedly. Okay. But yeah. you can't really. I don't think you really. Then they they actually have. Uh, I'm I don't sure, mean to, I'm sorry. I I really don't mean to diss on either one of them. They're both no, and, enormously and, successful filmmakers, and I love all their stuff. I'm just making fun of two of their movies that I wasn't crazy <laughs> about. That's it, which which is legit. But like, I've gotten much pleasure from both of them, and I I I, I take it all back. And, you know, I was going to say, though, but it, it's it's a no less uh, prestigious list of people who I'm guessing probably do much more of the the teaching of this essentials program. I'm assuming that uh, and I could be wrong, but Judd Apatow and Ang Lee probably don't have a, a lot of time to to dive into. The, all I the mean, essentials. is it like a pre-recorded, like a master class kind of a thing? I kind of get that feeling, but I, I'm well, not 100 percent. Of course they could have them do that because they only have I, to get them yes. once. I, and, and I don't know. I'll be very curious if someone does take this class and writes a review of it. I'd be curious to find out what, you know, how the, how the breakdown is. But essentially the curriculum, it says you get five online course modules and uh, related skill building activities. But I think those are at your own pace. And it says each module is three to five hours and broken mm-hmm. into several shorter lessons so you're going to spend 15 hours essentially because there's five modules if, if it's at the minimum of three but like module one is the fundamentals of film and it says students will explore major movements in film history and analyze expressive principles of visual and audio communication and i kind of feel like is three hours truly the, the minimum that you might need for that sort of thing no of hmm. course not this is a huge 
overview. And then and they have then this the next modules, fundamentals of television, understanding the production process yeah. and the production business, and then finally marketing and distribution. It sounds to me like very, very superficial sort of like over overview. And I mean, what that's all it get, could be. And when you get at the end, you get a certificate, a non-credential certificate. You have no actual NYU credits, but you get the certificate that says you completed this. And finally, after going through the entire site, I found what this costs. This certificate costs you a thousand dollars. It costs you nine hundred. Really? Okay, that's that's a lot. Like you know, masterclass. I think is is a very similar thing, but masterclass is like a hundred, maybe one hundred and fifty a year. It's not that bad. And then there are things like the great courses where you can, you know, uh, again, you can subscribe for a year, and I think it's like two hundred a year for any course on anything. So uh, for all their courses, as many as you want to watch. But wow, a thousand bucks. I mean, like that's uh, that's a lot. But when it comes to like whether or not you get a certificate, you and I both know how important it is when you're applying for a job in the film business. The first thing they want to see is any certificates you have that, uh, you know, any affidavits or certificates or uh, parking fines that you've paid. They want to they want to see the paperwork that shows that you know how to write, direct, you know, DP, all of those things. Be a grip. As a film school graduate, I got my diploma. I was like, yeah, awesome. I got this diploma. And uh, it wasn't too long before I realized exactly how valuable that was to the industry that I was hoping to to break into. And uh, truly, I mean, are you being ironic? Yeah, no, I'm not being ironic. I really thought I really thought this like what I like. Oh, I've got this degree. It's going to help me in some way, like getting into the industry. But, you know, I was naive. I was naive in 1996. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, I think that if you said I've got a master's degree in cinema from USC, that'll impress a handful of people. But really what going to any school is going to do for you is like if you go to USC, there's enormous alumni support in LA for people who went to that school and for all of these schools. And so it'll open doors. And we've said it a thousand times when talking to various cinematographers on this show, but it's like going to the real value of film school is all the people you go with. So all the people who you meet, who you end up working with or who you end up working for, who you end up hiring or who end up hiring you, blah, blah, blah. So an online certificate class, you get none of that benefit and you're, and you're spending a grant. I, I think you'd be way better served to go to your local community college and take a film overview course for a fraction of that. And you'll meet a handful of people who make films, no matter what city you're living in and go make some films with those people. I agreed. I think that there's a lot of ways that you could spend that money. Uh, that probably would be better for your career. And there's a ton of ink that's been spilled about all of these things already. Very competently written things in a bookstore that you could, you could pick up uh, at least five of them for probably, you know, less, less than a quarter of what it costs to take this class. I also think that so, there are a gajillion amazing podcasts that go over every field. I mean, we're, we're here trying to do one ourselves where we're talking to cinematographers, but I, I know I've mentioned it several times on the podcast, but one of my favorite podcasts going way, way, way back is Script Notes with John August and Craig Mazin. It's all about screenwriting. And uh, if anything is a great education in screenwriting, it's that podcast. And it's free. They only have so many episodes up for free at any given point. So if you want their back catalog, I think for like 20 bucks or something like that, you can get their entire back catalog on a thumb drive. And, you know, and they've been doing it for like 10 years uh, there, there are so many ways, and obviously in in the film world too, uh, you anything that you don't know how to do, you can go on YouTube and you'll find. Uh, the the hard part, of course, is figuring out who's a real expert and who's bullshit. But you can find all kinds of people who show you how to do different tricks, different 
techniques, different styles, blah, blah, blah. And I, I mean, I'm not dissing on this yellow brick road situation or what's it called? Brick road, yellow road? Yeah, yellow brick. Yeah. Yellow brick. Thank you. I'm not dissing on it because I don't honestly, you talking about it is the first I've ever heard of it, but that just sounds like a lot of money to spend when in my opinion, the real benefit of a film education is being in like a laboratory with other up and coming filmmakers. Yes. And, and that's not the thing actually, I think that most schools really advertise, but really they should because uh, those people who you go to school with and granted, I know it's a pandemic right now, but I'm assuming the pandemic will end and film schools will still continue to be a thing. But the people you go through, the people who go through that with you uh, become your network. And it's a really great way to get to meet a lot of people who are one uh, driven and uh, willing to spend money on uh, on the same adventure that you are. And that immediately puts them in like a category beyond just the tourist who might be someone that you uh, encounter and maybe a less demanding sort of situation. So the, the people who are paying money for that, they've got a real they've got a real vested interest. I think yeah, I that mean, I, before I, I completely take a crap on this, I would want to see who the actual instructors are. And if it is Judd Apatow and Angley, that's pretty amazing. But but you could get I, I mean, two people we've just mentioned in this podcast, Werner Herzog and David Lynch, plus the one that I talked about endlessly, Ron Howard, are all on Masterclass. And to me, the Ron Howard Masterclass if I was going to do one online course of all the things I've ever seen, I would go do the Ron Howard Masterclass. It's got some of the best information I've ever seen in anything like that. I don't really know. I, I don't mean to completely uh, take a dump on Yellow Brick, but uh, I mean, there are other courses. Uh, they all basically seem like basic introductory sort of stuff. And, you know, industries like streetwear, music, sneakers, fashion, beauty, sports, hospitality and gaming. And I don't know. They, they have like name experts, but I get the feeling that it's sort of like a master class. I don't know how long these people actually spend there. They all are like working professionals with real careers, yeah. not necessarily just uh, educators and taking nothing away from educators, because I would actually say that you're probably going to be better off with someone who's spent a good deal of time figuring out how to teach you the fundamental stuff you need to know versus someone who is just doing it and says, well, this is how I do it or this is the what you, you yeah. should do. I, I mean, mean it's, and that's it's the downfall this. of some of those master classes. Like I watched the Werner Herzog one all the way through and I found it fascinating, but I didn't actually walk away with like, oh, that's going to improve my filmmaking. Whereas the Ron Howard one, I walked away like, oh, yeah, I'm stealing all of these moves. This is all brilliant. <laughs> Nice. Well, well, anyway, I, I just think that, like, let the buyer beware. I think everyone out there, you know what? You got to figure out what's what's real and what's not. If anyone doesn't know what's real or what's not, send me an email. Send me an IM. Send me something. Uh, I will uh, I will tell you if I can tell really quickly if this person's legit or not. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, that should be a public service out there. It's sort of like, you know, a Snopes or something out there. Like, seriously, hey, this, <laughs> it would be it, somebody <laughs> needs to make like Snopes for online learning. That's a great idea. Hey, here here's this macho guy with, you know, uh, a fixie bike and uh, a hipster beard, and he's telling me that for just two thousand dollars, he'll ma he'll make me an awesome action sport director. And it's like, uh, really? I mean, I I don't know. Maybe maybe he's he's cultivated his own thing enough to get an online course, and he recorded it once, and now he can sell it to you a million times over. But that guy's probably not going to help you if what you really want to do is make Hollywood narrative features. That's probably not your 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 guy. You know, one of the things that uh, that gets pounded in your head over and over again on script notes, because they like to they like to take on screenwriting gurus and they even take on people who I think give good information like Robert McKee and Sid Field, Blake Snyder, people who've written really good books about it. Christopher Vogler, like sure. they're very anti guru on that show. And mm -hmm. it's sort of like their whole I feel like they kind of hit a point where it's like what's the story you want to tell like why why do you want someone to tell you how to tell your story now I think that there's 
uh, a strong argument to be made for like give me some guardrails give me some an idea of what would be a bad idea for the industry so i don't go spend you know months of my life years of my life meticulously developing something that no one's ever going to want to touch but uh at the same time you know i i do think that uh you know i think you probably can teach commercials to a degree because commercial directing is a so much of it's about working with an agency and how to do that like that's the hard part also getting anyone to give a crap who you are that's the real hard part but yeah i mean like you know giving someone an overview of the entertainment business or of the filmmaking business i mean like it's just something you can't do that quickly and it's hard enough i think in a in a normal film school environment where you're in a classroom with people for let's say between probably two and three years uh, to get to a point where you have a command of technique. That's why you go there is to, is to make mistakes and fall on your face and be in a, in a laboratory environment with other people doing the same thing so that you can find your voice, but also so you can just kind of master basics, you know, and that some of that's hard mastering the basic stuff. It seems easy when you're on the other side of it, but actually, you know, it doesn't automatically occur to you until you, until you're studying it. I mean, maybe there's a way to give a quick overview of some of that stuff. Like I always say, I could probably teach you every hard fact I know about directing in about 20 minutes, but it's like all the all the subtleties of technique and all the, you know, the way, the different way you talk to a composer versus a DP versus an actor, you know, about, about their work and how to get the most out of, out of all of those relationships and how basically you're going to get stymied all the time. Cause no matter how much you think you have it dialed in, you're going to come across someone who challenges your preconceptions about that stuff. Like, you know, I don't think you can learn that in two to three years and you certainly can't learn it in five hours. All right, well, Ben, hey, we should give away. Uh, oh, good. It looks like we got a uh, we got a whole bunch of comments here. Let's see how many comments we got. Uh, 14 comments. It's time to give away a book. We're going to give away Don Coscarelli's uh, true indie book. What? Uh, pick a number between 1 and 14. Ooh. Oh, I'm going to go with 11. 11. Okay, you're going to make me count here. Let's see. That's 14, 13, 12, 11. Uh, Marco Segura, congratulations. A great interview. Need that book is what you wrote. And uh, you just won. So uh, if you're listening congratulations. to this, this, yeah, congratulations, Marcos. If you're listening to this show, uh, we don't have a, an email address or anything for you. So uh, reach out to us, email at camnoir.com and Alana will get back to you with all the details and uh, we'll get your address and we'll get a book out to you. Congratulations. Thank you so much for participating and uh, hope you hope you dig the book and thank you for listening to the interview. It was a thrill of my lifetime to talk to Don Coscarelli. I am not even slightly exaggerating. Uh, all right, so Ben, let's get to the uh, the interview with uh, Iris Ng. All right. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here speaking via Zoom to Toronto with Iris Ng. Thank you so much for coming on. We're excited to have you on. Thanks for inviting me. We're really excited to talk to you because we haven't really had, I, I don't feel like we've had enough documentary cinematographers on. And even though, and we'll get to it later, you're doing a lot more narrative lately, but you're mostly known for documentary. Probably the thing most of our listeners will know you from is Making a Murderer, uh, but you've done you know a bazillion documentaries. I always ask narrative cinematographers, I kind of have a question. Maybe you have a thought about it, so I'll, I'll hit you with it. When you're reading a script, I have a belief that cinematographers either see it in pictures, like compositions, or they see it in lighting, like in colors. But documentary is a different thing because you're discovering it as you go. So what is the thing that you're given when you're making a documentary for the most part? And what is it that you see? Where do the visuals come from in a documentary for you? 
Well, it's definitely true that you are discovering it as you go. And the first thing that I get is a proposal, maybe a call from a producer or a director and just a one pager or just something in writing where I get a sense of what the project is. And before I have that first meeting, I like to have something to look at just to, to brainstorm a little bit. It's really about perspective for me and how objective or subjective is this point of view that we're trying to depict through this story or idea. I'll usually go to a first meeting asking a lot of questions about this subject matter so that I can get a sense of, is this a story where we're looking at a subject or do we want to really be in their point of view? Do we really want mm -hmm. to understand it from their perspective and be sympathetic to them? Because there's a big difference, I feel, between uh, looking at an issue and feeling like you're embedded in it and that you're, you're alongside the people who are living it. Yeah, that's something oddly that I, I couldn't articulate at the time, but came sort of years later as sort of a mantra to, to ask myself this all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but it came from working on Stories We Tell, which is, is very much about perspective and what the camera is trying to embody at any given moment. So what is its place in the situation and how is it supposed to behave? I think once you answer that question, you can talk about lenses and proximity between you and the subject and even lighting and whether we should be shooting this handheld or on sticks and when and how the camera should be moving. I think all of that mm. comes down to that answer. Well, uh, you brought up the stories you tell, and I unfortunately have not seen it, but Alana has, and she's on the line with us. Alana, do you want to jump in? Oh, sure. Yeah. So in, you know, for example, in stories we tell, Sarah Polly was lucky enough to have a family who, you know, shot a lot of home movies. So, you know, I found it really very pers it's such a personal documentary, you know, with having the all the home movies in it. Tell me a little bit about how you matched the look of the home movies with what you added to it. Yeah, I think the lovely thing about working on that film and, and along with all its challenges was to really see how the collaborative process can really flourish when everybody's work can come together in this really magical way to create a response or create an effect. And I think a lot of people look at the cinematography of this film and credit it for, for doing an interesting job at telling the story, but it wouldn't be anything without the projection design being really great and the actors looking at the camera once in a while to create this, this interesting dynamic between the person behind the camera and them, hair, makeup, um, you know, even the editor. There were reenactments, correct? There are reenactments, yes. And so the idea of the story is that it is questioning the reliability of narrators through time. And when there are different perspectives on an issue or, or a story, how do we grapple with that? And I think when we were, we were coming up with ideas of how to fill these narrative gaps to illustrate certain points and certain parts of the story that people were telling that weren't recorded in home movies, we were thinking, how, how do we fill those in? And it made sense to emulate the language of the story already, which was this wealth of archival footage that the family had, which is amazing. But in doing that, we can also call into question the reliability of a narrator, which is what the story is about. So by blurring those lines between what is real and what isn't, we can embody the message of the story itself. And to do that, I did a, I did a lot of testing for that film. I think I drove some people nuts in the process because it was my first higher budget documentary. And it really was one of the first ones that I was the sole cinematographer on. I think when you start out, you work on a lot of things where you're one of a few. And so you're adding to a look by either blending in with um, other people's work or, you know, sort of negotiating that. But this is the one film that I had full creative input on. And luckily, you know, sometimes they'll have a, a, a cinematographer shoot the doc interview material, and then they'll hire somebody else to do the reenactments. But Sarah wanted me to do them all, which was great. And so it, it stretched me or it challenged me in a way that was really gratifying in the end. But Lots of testing, meaning I was afraid at the beginning that 
you can't rely on, you know, we decided that Super 8 was the way to go or eight millimeter or, or emulating that format that was in the real home movies as much as possible. But I couldn't get myself to rely on a Super 8 camera with all this crew. <laughs> like this was the first time I was, I was gonna have three electrics, um, <laughs> three grips, like a real crew for the first time in my life. How can all of that work? <laughs> you know, it's a regular independent feature film sort of scale. How can all everybody's work go into a single take or however many takes onto one piece of reversal film on one camera. <laughs> no camera was built to handle that kind of load and to be as reliable as anything else. So I thought, well, why don't we do it on 16, uh, like the Aton Mini or is it like there, there are some cameras that were really lightweight at the time. And why don't we just extract a piece of that? And I did some tests and, and you know, we worked with Technicolor in Toronto and they helped us try some things. And we had this really great, um, colorist, Mark Cooper. And we sort of sat there and we thought, well, there are things about Super 8 that are just inherent to it that we can't replicate with 16. 16 is so much more stable, for instance, and it, it doesn't have that jitter. It'd be hard to recreate that. You know, it's possible, but that's a lot of work. And so the colorist just said, you know what? Super 8 right out of the box is Super 8. So why don't you figure out a way to, to make that work? So the way to do that was to always have a backup camera. So no one take was ever going to go to one piece of film. So once we got to what we wanted, we would switch to the B camera, whatever it was, and shoot a take on that one. And so we'd keep revolving back and forth. And you kind of had to anyway, because those little film cartridges are so short. It's two and a half minutes like, or, or three. I think we're shooting 18 frames. So I had this amazing first assistant of a Perswitz who was just rotating like five different Super 8 cameras all the time. And I would note, okay, we do one take. It's like, oh, this one's kind of jamming. It's okay, move to the next one. And so she was, she never saw the light of day because... <laughs> she was in the basement or wherever while we were shooting. She'd be handing me cameras. Aside from all that and going with that technical route and using the only reversal film that was available at the time, which was 7285. Aside from all that, something that Sarah articulated after we finished the film and after it goes to festivals and the cinematographer can tag along to go to Sundance or whatever, it's so exciting. You could hear her answer questions about the process and how this effect comes about. And the way that she articulated it, which was interesting to me, was that everybody had to play a role. Iris did, Mike Munn, the editor did, Leah Carlson, the production designer did. Everybody had to pretend that they were in the past somehow. So by holding the Super 8 camera in my hand, I had to pretend in any given moment that I was either the father or a kid at a funeral or an acting friend backstage roaming around just catching behind the scenes footage of his buddies. And so that dynamic played out every time we shot a given scene. And I would act in a way that reflected what that person would be doing, which sometimes meant that you don't focus on the protagonists because there are no protagonists yet. This is the seventies. We're just filming whatever. <laughs> so, so I think that's what I mean by like that point sort of informing a lot of my work is always that question of how is the camera supposed to behave and gleaning from that. How did you come to work on Stories We Tell? Well, Sarah and I grew up together, so I've, I've oh. known her and I lived the story as well in, you know, in a peripheral way through, through friendship. Oh, wow. Yeah, so th that helped. Um, <laughs> it helped with the comfort <laughs> level, but it, it helped in different ways. And that was, it was actually something that I didn't tell very many people after the film came out, because I felt like it's going to seem like I only came to this because my friend was a director. And, you know, partly that's true. It's because we knew each other. And I also knew the story of her family. I also knew her family. So there's a familiarity there. But she's told me that she'd seen a film that I 
that I made. And I, I don't have aspirations to be a director, but after film school, I made one film that I sort of just wanted to get out of my system. <laughs> and it was called Point of Departure. It was a personal film about my family. And through audio recollections, I wanted to retrace their footsteps to Hong Kong and where they came from and just what lives in their mind and what lives in their memories. And somehow she made a connection and she's told me that that was a film that was inspirational to her. But what an amazing gift that honestly, that you had a personal connection to the documentary that you were making. Like most cinematographers are brought on, you know, they're hired to to shoot a whatever it is, (laughs) documentary, feature, whatever. But you actually knew the story inside and out. I mean, to me, that makes that would make you uniquely qualified, you know, that plus all the experience you had going into it. I'm just saying, I think that's awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Could we, I'd love to back up a little bit and just kind of talk about your background, you know, what led you to that point. When did it first occur to you that shooting films or shooting documentaries was, you know, a thing that you could do? I'm not sure, but I think the more interesting part of it is that it would never seem like something I couldn't do. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure why that happened either. I grew up with the arts in my life. I went to a a performing arts elementary school and high school and was into photography. And I was handed my first camera by my grandfather and was really interested in taking stills and sort of had a knack for that. Didn't want to be a photographer, but I was an art major and I had music in my life as well. And so the art background is informed sort of a critical side to my practice in that I'm I'm constantly sort of taking apart the elements of design, so to speak, because our teachers were always asking us, well, why, why did you choose this? Why blue? And, and we would have to have an answer. We have to have a very good answer. So I feel like I've taken that into my documentary making where I was like, I have to answer to any question that might come my way in terms of any decision that we make about the look of something. Mm-hmm. I went to university, I went to film school, Mm-hmm. Um, I went to York University in Toronto. It's a four-year undergrad program and sort of learned all the other parts of filmmaking. I didn't, I wanted to concentrate on cinematography, but didn't really work out. So I ended up doing everything. I, I directed something. I did sound, I sound edited, I edited projects, but I had sort of a well-rounded education in that. I sort of got a broader picture of how this stuff is made. So it seems like a lot of your inspirations were narrative, but you decided to go into documentary. Where did the passion for documentary come from? I'm not sure because I did set out to start out in narrative and, mm-hmm. you know, as sort of the default for a cinematographer, right? Like, and, and documentaries in school were not the focus and we didn't really learn that much about them or really get into it so much. But I did start to go to hot docs in Toronto at the time, just to be a good sort of filmmaker. I went, I started going to TIFF and hot docs and I started becoming really interested in, in that form. And just at that moment is when Lisa Valencia Svensson approached me to shoot this little doc. And so that shift kind of happened, but it, it was sort of a natural transition for me. And I ended up really liking it. And I've found that the lifestyle really suits me of being mobile all the time and being adaptive too. I feel like the relationships that are formed in with real subjects in documentaries also has come to really appeal to me. I have a question about that too. So, I mean, because really like documentary requires often a long time commitment, years sometimes. I guess, how, how do you sort of uh, do that, I guess? I think that's the biggest challenge that I have <laughs> with the kind of work that I, that I do. Most of the films that I work on are long-form documentaries, so features or, in the odd occasion, a documentary series. So, yeah, sometimes they take years. You also can't be sure of when they're going to shoot any specific part of it. So the difficult thing for me is that I know by now that I can choose the number of projects that I accept and involve myself in and, and commit to. 
but it means that, you know, as a cinematographer, you don't want to start something and not be able to finish it because you're not available because you have too many projects on the go. So I try to choose projects where I, I know the director can be flexible to a certain extent, but that we can always have a conversation about scheduling and trying to make it work so that I can work on the whole film. Where is the line for you between being a journalist, say, like you're there to faithfully record what happened versus a filmmaker who's there to kind of make a piece of art out of what's happening? Well, like I'm thinking about a documentarian like Joe Berlinger or yeah. Frederick Wiseman yeah. and and how their, their films are very fly on the wall, although Berlinger really goes to great lengths to make his stuff look cinematic but it's very like you're you're in a court case and and this is something that you know when when we talk about making a murderer i i wonder how much it would play in because making a murderer does kind of seem like it's connected culturally to paradise lost and and other documentaries like that but uh, you know and then on on the far other end would be filmmakers like errol morris who art directs and and really perfects the image and relies heavily on reenactments often to tell his stories and they're both you know it's not that one is more of a documentary than the other but do you have an opinion about journalist versus filmmaker like where that line is I and the camera have to be non-judgmental and to mm. tend to receive information and motion or whatever it is that's in the moment and to also be listening in order to capture something truthfully. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how those two, like what the relationship is in the way that I view it. It's just, that's my approach is, is to just be there to witness something and to take the techniques that I know in the way that the director and I have talked about making this film to shape and to create a perspective that suits i suppose the thesis mm -hmm. uh, do you ever find that there's like a push pull in your mind as someone who's trying to photograph something truthfully but also has a cinema brain where it's like oh if i put the camera over there it's going to look so much more beautiful but it's going to violate the truth and so you do you ever have to make that decision and if so do you tend as a documentarian to land in one or the other yeah but those issues always come up it's like this frame looks great but this doesn't really say anything about what we want to say about this person, or it makes them look counter to what their role is in the film, or it bends the truth. And I'm, I'm very much somebody who likes to work from within and, and let the core of the film inform how we treat the form. I kind of think of it in, in that sort of cliched way as form follows function. So yeah. we can't make any decisions that are not grounded in the meaning that's intended or or what's supposed to be expressed from the inside, as opposed to something we're trying to impose or something that we think we want to see. So I kind of want to talk about what seems to me is kind of the most elemental part of documentary filmmaking, which is shooting interviews. Uh, you do a lot of them in documentary work. And uh, talk to me like I'm a film student and I've never done anything like this before. Like, what are the kinds of considerations that go into how you go about shooting an interview, you know, because your work spans different genres within the documentary form. So how do you go about kind of constructing a, a strategy for shooting an interview for one film versus another? If you want to use examples from specific stuff you've worked on, that that might be helpful. In, in Shirkers, because, and I don't know whether Sandy knew this at the time, but, you know, she's a writer. So she really formed that film to be sort of a writer's film and sort of was very much from her perspective but it's also very collagey and it was kind of fun because she pushed to do things a little bit differently in terms of setting up an inter interview where we could be sitting on some concrete steps with one person or we can be sitting on a a landing and we we can embrace sort of the quirkiness of of the setting 
And I think she really came up with some ways to, to frame somebody differently. And then, you know, your work again is your work as a cinematographer on, on things like the stories we tell and Shirkers is, is so ruthlessly personal. Is there a way that you can kind of talk about your approach to something when it's going to be such a personal story? Well, first of all, you are asked to be along for this ride. And I, I don't think the filmmaker really knows where it's going to go. Um, I think, you know, in stories we tell, like both, I mean, both of these films are personal excavations and they have, yeah. they both have, incidentally, film material from the past that we can delve into that, that holds secrets and that we're going to examine for some answers about the past. And they're both like lusciously beautiful. Like it's, it's super eight and it's 16 mil in all its glory. Right. And automatically yeah. you're going to have this nostalgia you're going to leap into nostalgia when you when you see that footage. But it's also a contemporary search for the filmmaker. And you're also documenting that. So with Shirkers, Sandy had shown me the original footage and it's it, it blew my mind because it was so beautiful. Like I'd never seen anything like that. And to know that this film had never been released and, and she had just found it recently was, was kind of amazing. It was really inspiring too. I really wanted to work on this film with her. And we knew that we were going to revisit some of the places in Singapore that that are related to the film and to some of the people who were involved and to, there are all these parallels between this present search and, and what the film was, which is basically Sandy as a main character going around town looking for people to kill. And, you know, and looking for people to, to implicate and to involve in this story and to, to collect people. And we're sort of going on this re-road trip. So how do you approach doing that in the digital age? Well, it, it sort of felt appropriate that, you know, we're not immersed in this sort of teenage world anymore where everything's kind of candy colored and beautiful. We're, it's 20 years later and it just made sense. I mean, we probably would have shot it, you know, in 4K digital anyway, but it made sense to have a, a mature, more mature, wider, sharper, uh, like more sober contemporary lens, like literally more sharper <laughs> to show that we're, we're not in that age anymore, but we are, we're reevaluating something that, that was like this amazing experience from the past. So still incorporating some of those candy colors and finding some quirky frames and, and not really being adhered so much to the conventional interview shot, but, you know, just sitting down with people in their environments and letting them be a little bit not as cohesive with each other as we might want to in any other film. And aside from that, just to have fun with it. And I guess in terms of the personal angle, you know, Sandy and I went to Singapore first for a week to film some people there and months had gone by before we had finished the film by doing this sort of mini road trip in the States. So Poughkeepsie to visit Sophie, her friend Sophie and upstate New York and um, through the Hudson Valley and up to Boston to shoot with some old friends of George's there and to New Orleans. And by that time, you you know, because you work on a film for so long and you get to sort of learn more and more about what the film is about, more and more it made sense that, yes, this is a film about a film and Sandy is trying to put together the past in a way and investigate this mystery of hers. But she is very much a part of it, too. And like in stories we tell, there's this need for the audience maybe to feel like the director is part of this personal film too. Like it's not enough to, to hear their voice behind the camera and to, to know that they're editing the film and making it, but they kind of want to see them in there. And it just, it made sense because it was a film about a film to roll on Sandy, maybe directing people or having those conversations before the actual interview and just these sort of off the cuff moments and to turn the camera on her. Would, do you think it'd be fair to say 
that your perspective as a slight outsider, you know, you're, you're working directly with Sandy on that. But do you think that it affords you like an objectivity that you can you're going to gather footage for her? Now, whatever's going to go in the film is whatever she decides to put in the film. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not necessarily in the editing bay or right. are you? But no. Um, is it fair to say that, you know, your objectivity allows you to kind of gather even more material than she was expecting to get to kind of pierce the veneer of it a little bit more and, and see what's really going on? Because she's kind of in it at the moment. And, and Sarah Polly in the stories we tell, same thing. Is, it, is, is that fair to say, do you think? Yeah. And I think filmmakers or directors need you to be that sort of objective eye because they are sort of like in any film I kind of think that the directors are always obsessed with the subject matter yeah. and perspective is a hard thing to have when this, I, I guess the stakes are higher too for them and in, in just their investment in it. And not that mm-hmm. I'm not invested, but I'm just invested in a different way and I'm, I'm invested visually and. But there's like, they might be like in a forest for the trees kind of a level of investment where they're so inside the story that they need somebody who's, who, who's a collaborator, who's on their side, who mm-hmm. they trust to be like, no, no, we need to get, you know, we, we need to see this moment, you know, and then obviously they can decide in the edit bay whether or not that tells the story or not, but to give them that option. Yeah. And that get, that affords me a little bit of safety, too, is that I can do a little bit of experimenting. I'm not making any decisions for them. Sometimes I am in choosing what to point the camera at. But mm-hmm. um, ultimately, it's still I still get to defer to them because they ultimately have the last say. Well, I, I think it, it would be uh, remiss of us to not talk about making a murderer, which was a giant phenomenon. I don't mean to make this comparison too lightly, but it was the Tiger King of its day. It was uh, the Netflix series that was kind of the, the water cooler thing. Uh, I haven't when, seen, by the way. You haven't seen <laughs> anyway, Tiger King? On. No. Uh, it's nuts. Um <laughs> But I do have a lot of questions about it, but I know that you can only talk about certain things. But can you tell me how you became involved in that? And also, like, to me, that's something that generally a story like that would have been a documentary feature. Uh, Do you know what was the choice, what drove the choice to make it into, what was it, an eight-part series, I believe? Yeah, it was a 10-part series. 10-part, my bad. 10 hours. (laughs) Yeah, that's Um, a lot. (laughs) Record. I mean, 10 hours depicting the course of 10 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you think of part two, it is 10 hours also, but depicting the span of two years. So it's it's so much more detailed. Yeah. So up until that point, I I guess I was talking about these moments where you you get these opportunities that open up something new for you. And a little while after I had shot stories we tell, maybe a few years later, you know, and by the way, when you work on something that sort of resonates with people like stories we tell and has sort of critical acclaim, you, you think that things are going to happen for you right away. It's like, oh, I'm going to get a lot of calls now. Um, and it never really happens that way. And it somebody did warn me that it was going to take two years <laughs> before before those calls that are related to that film are going to come in. So what, I don't remember what year it was, but it was at least a couple of years. And up until that point, I had worked with a lot of people within my documentary community in Toronto. So there's, a, there's quite a tight-knit community here where a lot of people know each other and we know each other's work and a lot of the jobs that I got were based on word of mouth and, and through directors and producers knowing each other and wanting something directly related to something they had seen. So mostly like maybe for stories we tell a lot of people like the idea of creating great recreations, right? Or convincing recreations and would want me to shoot like Super 8 for something or want me to do something similar. But really like I, I felt like taking that element out of a film which was built around sort of a deeper meaning about memory and archivals generally was a little bit 
uh, challenging for me. But yeah, I got this email one day from Moira and Laura, or the, the co-directors and producers of Making a Murderer. And they just, they said, they, they were pitching me, um, and <laughs> of all things. And the email was something like, we, we have this, all this material that we've shot. We've been following this case of the first DNA exoneree in Wisconsin. We've been following it for all these years. And we think we have something interesting, but we also, in following this for so long and, and following a trial, um, we need somebody to, to really um, elevate the footage that we have. They were shooting on SD and, mm -hmm. you know. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I came in on, on year nine of their 10 year journey. <laughs> so over the course of that time, technology changes so much. And, and by oh, that time sure. we, we were delivering HD. So what do you, what do, you do at that point? Um, basically they said that they needed somebody to elevate their footage, but also to, to blend into it well and not do anything too heavy handed. And they just wanted to talk to me and we had this Skype meeting and we we're both very excited at this idea. And they showed me a little uh, edit that they had put together. I don't remember whether, you know, I don't remember how long it was, but they said that they had seen stories we tell and two other Canadian films that I'd worked on, which I, I don't even know how they would have found, but um, there was a tremendous compliment to be reached out to by people who didn't know me and just saw something that they thought would work for them. Like what were the influences that, that you, as you saw it, uh, that were influencing you as you were making it? I sort of just like to work within the space of a film. Um, sometimes references help, they, they help for a shorthand, but a lot of the time I create a sense of what we're going for by just talking a lot with the directors to, to get a sense of what they're looking for. And I think for that series and for most of what I work on, I, I'm trying to block most things out and just listen to the, the words of the directors and take their word for what it is. So for me, that was uh, creating HD footage that cut directly with SD footage. So an ex they, they needed exteriors of, of courtrooms and jails and legal offices and all of these things that they couldn't get while they were following the story so loyally. They didn't have time to get the exterior shot of Manitowoc Courthouse, for instance. So, and because the story spanned such a long period of time, it meant that we had to go back every season to get these exteriors. And it seemed so crazy at the time, but we were standing outside a courthouse from 4.30 in the morning until 7 at night, uh, either getting time lapses or just getting different angles of, of the building. And it seemed like we were doing it, it endlessly and in excess. But really, after when you have 10 hours of material, I mean, and they told me afterwards, you end up using everything. So that sort of ridiculous exercise that we thought we were involved in at the time and at the time, it was during that polar vortex, if anybody remembers that. And it was so cold that the camera stopped working. It was so cold that a Canadian took note of it being cold, which to me means it was really cold. It was one of the coldest moments of my life. <laughs> Wisconsin. There was a flag. The state flag was blowing so hard that day that I think at the beginning of the day, it was sort of frayed at the edge. And then at the end of the day, I looked at it and I thought, is it even smaller than it was earlier? Because the wind had been flapping so hard that it actually ate away at the, the material. <laughs> so we, anyway, we had a C300 and at a certain point I was waiting for people to go inside this building and I hit record. The screen just froze and wasn't taking in new information. <laughs> and, oh no. And I think the one of the record buttons stopped working. It was that cold. So it was this, this grueling process of, of shooting something that isn't the sexiest thing that you've ever shot in your life as a cinematographer, but is <laughs> tremendously useful to the story that is so much more dynamic 
in its interiors. Well, and I imagine that there must have been ripples through the world of documentary filmmakers, uh, which is a, you know, a smaller subset of people who make movies, you know, because it's hard to get a doc funded. It's hard, you know, hard to get it seen. And then I feel like when one blows up such as yours, it's got to be a huge win for that whole community because it, it doesn't just raise awareness of your film. But I'm assuming that people are, you know, like on, you're watching it on Netflix. And when it's done, Netflix is going to serve you up another documentary. Clearly, mm-hmm. you, you watch this. Do you see a, a residual benefit from, you know, even something like Tiger King, which, you know, is controversial and whatever. But but Tiger King is a documentary. It blows up. Does it raise the profile of other documentaries? Um, I just remember thinking at the time that I don't believe that there were documentary series Mm -hmm. up until that point, not at that length. And so having the opportunity for a documentary to tell its story thoroughly in that way felt really new. And and it seemed like, in terms of the form anyway, that was unprecedented from from what I knew. I'm not sure if I'm missing something. I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was before Errol Morris's series Wormwood, right? Yes. Was it six episodes? This was 10, 10 hours of one story. And the fact that a documentary could take up that much space in media was a victory for documentary, I think. Well, and I never really thought about it but until you just said that, but really Making a Murderer did kind of open up the doors for this kind of long-form documentary surge that we're seeing left and right. There's a lot of them on, on uh, the streamers. Yeah. There was that one about Lorena Bobbitt. There was, uh, mm-hmm. like I said, the Errol Morris Wormwood one. And uh, it's interesting that we'd be moving in that direction. Although, again, I'm not comparing your project to Serial, but I do think that podcasts, in a way, got people used to documentary that was also long-form, you know, like might be... Yeah. 10 hours might be 20 hours. Yeah, that's true. And like this sort of linear episodic that was was more something you would think about in a narrative form, I think. And I, and I know you said that when you were working on Making a Murderer, you didn't know how long it was going to be, but your other projects for the most part were features. And that was the first thing that you'd ever done that was going to be, you know, that that many episodes long. When you're working on a project now, you must be aware of, of the intended length of the project, give or take. I mean, not necessarily, is it an 80 minute feature or a 120 minute feature, but is it a feature? Is it a series? If you were doing it again, would you approach the material any differently? I don't think so. But And the thing that was different about working on a series, and whether you know that it's going to be a 10-hour series or not, you're gathering as much material as possible and as many options, um, maybe as many angles as you can, mm-hmm. because you're only going to have one shot at it, let's say. Um, even if it's shooting a building, like we're only going to be here in the springtime once. Like we're making the trip out. Let's get this properly and get it from all sorts of angles hose it down hose it hose it down but but with intention i guess yeah <laughs> but but yes <laughs> sorry but, I, did, um, I, did, I didn't i just like no. <laughs> i like saying hose it down when someone first gave me i know because it, it really I, it, I do it's feel a lot like of it's fun to think like, about shoot it. the shit out of it <laughs> but, <laughs> <you know? laughs> um not that we did that on this but yes um <laughs> <laughs> you shot the integrity out of it. I get it. No, yes, no, it's, it's all that's good. Right. Um, where were we? <laughs> I get so distracted. Um, Sorry. Oh, but just just the amount of. Um, I think for me, maybe people have different ways of shooting different formats if they know they're shooting a series versus a feature documentary. Let's say, but I think my approach is the same. It's just in the editing, so much more gets used, and so and and so much more has to be stretched. Whereas the the ratio for a feature might be so much higher 
in terms of what's used and what isn't, because there is only yeah. so much time to tell it. And so not that the quality goes down when you use more of it. It's just that your material has to just tell so much uh, it has to cover this so much more time. Well, that's the story we keep hearing, even uh, with narrative, is that, you know, with these long form TV series, they have to look just as good as as the highest budgeted movies. The, the production value is expected to be the same, but uh, the budgets and schedules are shorter. Exactly. And s- smaller and shorter. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> But documentary is, is, is its own animal because you're with it for so long. That's a, it, it's, it's a great story. Can you uh, tell me a little bit, because you're moving into uh, narrative. You're not moving away from documentary, but you're, you're mm-hmm. shooting more narrative than you have in the past. And narrative is sort of what got you excited about it and what you, start, what you began studying how to shoot. Uh, what, what's it like transitioning to narrative after you've been doing so much amazing documentary work? But what's different about it? Yeah, I suppose I'm somebody who likes to be scared by new things, mm-hmm. like challenged, even, you know, in documentaries, I like being put in different situations all the time. And I feel like the forum, there's a sort of, there's a way that I feel like my experience builds from one project to another, but I'm still surprised when I step into another, a, a new situation in documentaries. And I guess I just feel like now, not that I have, I guess I've shot a couple of shorts in the last mm-hmm. 10 years and, and I've only begun to have a taste of the scripted world by working on this short digital series for CBC Gem called Hey Lady, which is sort of, it was a microcosm of of what working on a longer series would be, like the pacing and shooting seven, eight, nine pages a day and, and having multiple directors oh, wow. that you're sort of um, negotiating between. There's actually, it was only nine days of shooting, 20 locations wow. and with three directors. So Adriana Mag, Sarah Polly, and Will Bowes. And so we really had to coordinate Oh, so you get to work with Sarah Polly again. That's cool. I did. It was it was great. And I mean, that project was a lot of fun. And it was a comedy. Not not something that I thought I would move into. It's, you know, I don't assume that working on the serious documentaries that I do, that that would be the next step for me. <laughs> we have um, a wild comedy. Let's get the making a murderer woman in here to I shoot know, it. I know. <laughs> I know. You know what I normally shoot, right? Okay. You sure you want me to do that? Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, I mean, I, th- oh. I think when you look at something like 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 Shirkers, you know, there, there's there's mm-hmm. definitely a wit to the to the composition. There's a, there's a style, sure. um, and and a you know, there's I, I don't know. I mean, I could I can I can see the comedy connection. It, it's not outlandish. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> I guess so. Before we wrap it up, is there any place people can find your work online or interact with you on social media? I have a website, um, but mm. I'm not on social media, so very smart you have like seven more hours in every day than the rest of us so that's very (laughs) smart of you i don't know about that i'm missing out on a lot and i i know i have missed out on a lot over the years um i just don't feel like i'd be very good at keeping that up and i also can't really document things that i'm working on as as much as i'd love to because a lot of them are confidential at the time so i have to anyway i don't think i'd be very good at it that's my answer um but my website is iriscinematography.com Cool. We will post that in our show notes and encourage our listeners to check it out. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So that was uh, Iris Ng. Thanks again, Iris, for coming on the show. I think she was one of our first Zoom interviews, uh, which, you know, we were still kind of getting the hang of the whole Zoom setup, but uh, just such great information. And I I just love her work so much. It was exciting to have her on and uh, hopefully we'll have her back. Hey, Ben, you know what time it is? Oh, no. Is it that time where we pay bills? (laughs) It is. It's time to pay the bills. We got to talk about Aperture. Aperture, our fine sponsor, sponsoring this this program, has a new light that is going to drop in really the next couple of weeks. Well, they've already announced it, but they're going to give all the details of a light called the 600D. Mm. And the 600D 
is their brightest light that they have ever made. It really? is ri- ridiculously bright. The reason it's called uh, 600 is that it uses 600 watts of power. And uh, well, I can't tell you everything about it right now because frankly, I don't know. And they haven't really said it. Uh, there are sort of like coming soon, pre-order coming soon announcement sort of stuff at, at all of our competitors. I don't think we've got it up quite yet, but we will try to get it up here relatively soon to people who are interested, uh, who want this light. But essentially, if you are familiar with sort of their other lights, they have a 120D, which is 120 watts, and a 300D, which is a you know 300 watts, and they have a, a version called an X, which allows you to be both a daylight colored light and a tungsten colored light. Is this light. like a Fresnel style light? or a- You can add a Fresnel to it. It, but it's an open face uh it's an open face light that has a reflector around it okay and it's rumored to be around two thousand dollars but uh the output on it is going to be probably pretty similar to the very very bright uh 1.8 k hmi so it's like it's we're talking about a serious serious light and you can attach all kinds of cool stuff to it you can attach uh ellipsoidals you can attach uh, soft boxes and uh it's got a very cool battery ballast i got a little preview of this thing a while ago that has some some nice features but it's also supposed to be silent which you know to have bright light and silent and this price and everything else uh look you know i don't have this is all rumor mill right now but uh mm-hmm. it's all about to not be rumor mill in the next w- couple of weeks in the next couple of weeks they're going to have a uh, formal announcement and then voila the 600d is going to be a reality and i think they're going to try to crank them out there and for a lot of people out there who need something they can plug into their household outlet which really a 600 watt bulb it's you know it's not it's not going to pull uh, that many amps essentially it's of course uh, a very very powerful 600 watts as far as the output goes but this light is going to do some things for some people out there who uh, need bright sources and small small units that uh, they weren't able to really easily do at this price point so that's nice. it's going to be a it's going to be a big thing awesome can't wait to see it and now, short ends. So, Ben, it is our famed short end time. So, uh, um, before I do my short end, I wanted to do a slight update on something that I talked about a ooh. couple of weeks ago, which okay. which is uh, I talked about the After Effects plugin Swarms and mm. my episode of 20 Seconds to Live that I'd wanted to put flies into. And so, I took the plunge. I dropped 50 bucks. I got the Swarms plugin, and uh, I love it. <laughs> I think it's amazing. Uh, again, I have no, I don't know the people who make it. I'm not, you know, this isn't a paid sponsorship of any kind, but, uh, I'm, I'm looking at it and, and, uh, I didn't get flocks, which is the one that, um, allows you to put like birds in the sky, but birds in the sky is something that really, you know, like, let's say you were doing a green screen shot and you had a still photo of an outdoor scene that you were putting, you know, your character into. If you put a cup, like just a bird flapping through the sky, like mm. it, it would bring the shot to life in interesting ways. And uh, the swarms thing, and I don't have the file to share yet. We, we are going to re-release the episode. You know, the goofiest thing on earth is to release a director's cut of a uh, web series. <laughs> but, you know, we, we made the episode five years ago and it took me some time uh, dicking around with the plugin, mostly because of my lack of I'm I'm just I'm not a, a VFX pro, you know. I'm 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 uh, I'm able to operate After Effects, but it's not something that that 
I know inside and out, I'm, you know, and a yellow belt at, at After Effects. So it took some uh, beating my head against the keyboard to get to get it to do what I wanted it to do. But it was pretty amazing to make swarms and make them behave however you want, move from one side of the screen to the other and really have fly like movements. And, you know, they, it comes with 17 different bugs that you can animate. So potentially next week I might be able to post the episode in the show notes to say like, hey, check it out. Maybe we'll do a Maybe I'll make it like a little before and after so people can sort of see what I what I added because it actually adds a lot. I was surprised at how much I how much more I liked this thing, but it's you know because after five years it actually looks the way that I hoped it would. Nice, that's a wonderful epilogue to uh, yeah yeah. To so uh, yeah, anyway, so yeah, if you're if you need to add bugs or uh, flocks, they also make one that's called I think schools that's fish. That one seems less useful to me but maybe you're doing something with lots of fish i don't know i don't know who you are definitely check it out uh i thought it was pretty cool so for uh short ends are you ready to jump into short ends i'm so ready so ready so uh well why don't you go first then okay well ben let me ask you do you know what a vespid is i i didn't know this a so vespid I, I, like yeah it's spelled v-e-s-p-i-d I have never heard that word. I was like, a Vespa? Uh, no, Vespid. No, it's a, it's a large, diverse, cosmopolitan family of wasps, uh, including nearly all the known wasps and many uh, solitary wasps. Anyway, it's uh, I, I just had to look this up here because, uh, or uh, recently, because turns out there's a new series of cinema lenses come out called Vespids. Uh-huh. And I was like, what the, what the heck is a Vespid? So, um, but yeah, it's, it's named for uh, the family of wasps. And um, I generally don't think of wasps as a particularly small insect but the vespid i, I think cin- of them as most of the voting uh populace in never mind going <laughs> not a small insect or no, <laughs> anyway um so the vespid primes uh are from a company called dzo who's had a lot of turned a lot of heads recently with um uh, some new cinema zoom lenses but these primes uh are getting a lot of buzz because they have a very affordable price they're uh in the consumer range of pricing, but the mechanics and build quality feels very much like a something that professionals would use. It's all made of metal. Uh, the, the optical performance seems very good. I'm still doing testing on that, but uh, mechanics and the size of them is really, really interesting because they're tiny. And I've went out and watched about every online review type of thing that I could about these lenses and read every article that I could. And some people mentioned them as small. Some people mentioned them as compact. And, you know, some people said, oh, they're very maneuverable. But what they didn't mention is that these are the this is the smallest set of original PL mount cinema prime lens in decades. I mean, it is really it feels like something like a, a throwback, something that you might have had that Zeiss would have released 30 years ago. Really? And I love how small they are. They're not so small that they're unusable they're not so small that they're like uh they, they feel like a joke or a toy or something like that it's not a, a lens baby size thing it's like this is a real lens but it feels hey man, like a don't size you mean the lens baby i love lens babies <laughs> lens babies uh as cool as they are when you pick them up you immediately go like wow this doesn't feel like there's anything to it it feels like a toy it doesn't feel like a, a real lens i'm I, trying to say i that still this... use my lens baby 2.0 all the time because nothing says drunk pov like a lens baby 2.0 <laughs> i love that thing <laughs> Well, uh, the Vespid primes uh, are ridiculously small, and because of that, they're going to be an excellent, perfect pairing to like uh, red Komodo cameras, the new uh, Canon C70 that's coming out, uh, all kinds of people who are interested in like shooting with A7S3s and things mm-hmm. like that. These lenses are available in both EF and PL, although I will definitely recommend you get them in, in PL and get an adapter for whatever you're doing because PL is just always a better mount. But at $1,250 per lens. Oh, wow. Uh, that's a great price. 
And there's seven of them that are all that coming out basically at, at, at once. I mean, they're doing a six lens set and a seven lens set, and they have really good focal lengths, like all the sort of typical ones. But I actually think that maybe actually some of their focal lengths are better than, than some other brands out there. And they have a macro 90 millimeter lens coming out just after them, but none of them are bigger than a, a can of spin drift. And I, I know this because uh, I put a can of spin drift next to the lenses when and I unboxed spin drift them. spin drift is like the standard size soda can. So it is. It's the same <laughs> as a can, can of Coke. You're just but being you, uh, Well, I'm being very specific here because uh, I posted it inside the Facebook group for Hot Red Cameras, the Hot Red Cameras new technology group. And the two lenses there are 125, not a short focal length, and uh, 35, which is a relatively short focal length, right next to the spin can of, of, of bubbly water and both of them are significantly smaller than the soda can which is like uh, i mean a good i think point of reference anyway these lenses seem very cool i'm going to be diving into them all week anyone who is within the sound of my voice and is in los angeles who would like to see this early demo uh, set is welcome to come by hot ride cameras we're going to have them on display and people can play and, and test them and uh yeah at this sort at these sort of prices there are people out there who maybe didn't want to own cinema lenses or maybe they own a very expensive set but don't want to take them out on maybe freebie jobs or stuff like that. This, the, these lenses could be that because frankly, this, they're the same price as something that you might buy from a, a Canon or an icon or, or some other brands. Like or that. quite frankly, an online course that you could take to get you a certificate in having an overview on filmmaking. <laughs> uh, you said it <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So Ben, what's your, what's and, your short and unlike an online course, they have a resale value. They do have a resale value. <laughs> you said you didn't like it. I mean, it is $1,250 per lens so yes. it's not like you can't can't do it all with one lens or you could try you could just get a 50 and call I actually, it a day uh, there some was, people have done it there was an article or something i saw once that, or it was just like a list of like a bunch of movies that had all been shot on a single lens and i, th- I think that that's always it's i've never done that myself but i think it's an interesting challenge to say like hey we're going to shoot everything on a 50 never done it but i think it's a kind of a cool idea there's actually a lot of movies that have been shot on like two or three lenses. And that means that you could actually pick up a very cool two or three lens set too for not a lot of money. And I didn't mention any of the real technical details, but all of these lenses are full frame and all of them are T2.1. So they're fast and they cover basically everything. So that's, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my short end is a movie I have not yet seen. Uh, cause what? It, it hasn't How come out be yet. your obsession? It, it come, <laughs> it, because I've been uh, digging into the information about it. So it's called mm. Mank. And it's mm. the new David Fincher movie. It was shot by the guy who shot uh, most of Mindhunter, I believe, Eric Messerschmidt. Oh, Messerschmidt, yeah. Uh, who was a gaffer on, uh, I want to say, Gone Girl. And had worked with Jeff Cronenweth, who uh, we've had on the show. But you can check out the trailer now. It's about Herman Mankiewicz, the guy who wrote Citizen Kane. And mm. the more you look into it, the more interesting it is. It's shot in monochrome. It's shot on the red camera that only shoots monochrome. So there's no mm-hmm. color version of this movie in existence. It was shot monochrome. And it's shot in a style that kind of mimics the look of the movies around the time of Citizen Kane, right down to they did a mono sound mix. It's being nice. released on Netflix on uh, November 13th. And I was looking at the writer, and the writer's name is Jack Fincher. And I was like, hmm, that seems coincidental. No, that was David Fincher's dad. And he died in 2003. And Fincher oh, wow. was supposed to do this movie in 1997. So it's something that's been kind of brewing for a long time. Um, huh. I just would encourage everyone to go check out the trailer. Uh, I'm personally excited for it. As you know, I have kind of a bug up my ass about movies about the film industry. But for some reason, I give a pass to movies about old timey film industry. 
you know, like I think my problem is, and it, and it happens when I go to the film festivals all the time where it's like, there's, you know, a 22 year old has gotten their first shot to make a feature film and they made a feature film about a 22 year old who got his first shot to make a feature film. And I'm like, Oh, you can do I've some... never seen that before. That's an, that's an incredible idea for a movie. I'm going to rush out right now and find a 22 year old and make that movie. <laughs> I remember the first film festival I played when I moved to LA was what became the LA film festival at the time. It was the LA independent film festival. LA and, AFF, I, yeah. and I was super excited. My short, uh, the meeting had gotten in and I was able to go see all kinds of films there. You know, you could basically just go see anything you want. If you were a filmmaker, you had a festival pass. And mm-hmm. so I went to see as many things as I could. I met all these filmmakers and like seriously, uh, seven out of 10 of the films that were made were about people making movies. And even the ones that weren't somehow would have a scene with like a cigar chomping agent ruining somebody's dreams. And even the opening <laughs> night movie uh, was Phil Janot's Entropy, which is about a brilliant director trying to make his movie in the studio and the forces that prevent him from being able to make his movie. And it, and it, it, it all felt very trite. Anyway, that's a long rant. But like when people say, hey, I've got this cool movie I'm making. It's about a guy making a movie. It's like, uh, go get a real idea and come back to me later. However, when people make movies like Ed Wood or something like that, where it's like kind of looking backwards at, at, at the industry, you know, years ago and Citizen Kane being one of the more interesting stories about the making of a movie ever anyway, not just the fact that the movie was amazing, but the story itself of how it was made was great. And um, there is a movie that was made for HBO probably 20 years about uh, ago about this called RKO 281. Sure. Uh, which, oh, yeah. which starred, I believe, John Malkovich as Herman Mankiewicz in that one and Liev Schreiber as Orson Welles. This one is Gary Oldman playing Mankiewicz and it's and it's done so much in the style of, of those movies. It, I, I'm really looking forward to it because Fincher, as we all know, is just a meticulous stylist and notoriously uh, works until he gets it perfect. So it's interesting. And also watching the trailer, the trailer's kind of funny. And I'm like, Fincher's not known for doing funny. That's not a Fincher thing. So although Fight Club's got some comedy in it, I guess. I'm I'm looking at the cast right now, and actually, it, it looks like a uh, an incredible cast in this uh, this movie here on uh, IMDb, and it'll be interesting to see these young versions of all of these uh, Hollywood luminaries being played by uh, you know young Hollywood today. So you know, including people on here like Marion Davies and um, God, who who else did I just see here like Greta Garbo? There's a bunch of there's a bunch of people. So it'll yeah, be. I cool. mean, like this is something that like we've seen movies about this. You know, like Peter Bogdanovich made the Cat's Meow, which wasn't about this exactly, but was about William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies. There's uh, that movie that I believe Tim Robbins made called The Cradle Will Rock. That, Cradle Will Rock. Oh, yeah. That's right. that, that covers some of this stuff. And then I think RKO 281 is, you know, one of the most direct, you know, front on assaults of this specific story. But it's about Orson Welles. Orson Welles is the hero of that story. And this is about Mankiewicz. And Mankiewicz, in a lot of ways, is a more interesting character than Orson Welles and also lesser known. I mean, Orson Welles is a fascinating character. I'm not trying to say he's not. But Mankiewicz is someone who we don't know as much about or doesn't get as much ink spilled about him because he wasn't in front of the camera. But he's got a crazy story. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this. And I, I love that it's clearly a labor of love for David Fincher and a love letter to his dad in some way. I, I, you know, I was un- totally unaware of this. We didn't talk about our short ends before uh, diving in today, and uh, now I'm super excited. See why uh, I'm obsessed? Yeah, I, I see. I see it immediately. It's like it's it's vintage and it's retro, and it feels like it's vintage and retro without being a put on. And uh, it's got a, a really 
you know, it's got a really cool uh, pedigree here behind it. I can't wait. Yep. So, uh, Ilya, who do we have to thank this week as opposed to all other weeks? <laughs> Let us only thank new people who have never been thanked before. And goodbye. So, well, well, first, let's obviously thank Alana Cody, who uh, who works her ass off getting us these amazing interviews. And we have so many great ones coming up. And it, it really is uh, her hard work behind the scenes that makes all this happen. Not not you and me doing this jack off post rap crap on Sunday night. Uh, thanks. Thanks. You've completely minimized our, our role here. Both I, of I appreciate us that in one fell swoop. <laughs> well, OK, well, then let's thank Ben Katz because Ben Katz, you know, equally he's putting in the work, you know, he's making it happen. And now we've got new stuff going up on uh, YouTube. So if you're a YouTube person and you want to have a uh, one of our podcast episodes playing in the background, uh, there's some capability of doing that. And there's even some visuals and images and some extra stuff kind of thrown in there. Uh, ben Katz is doing a great job with that. And I can't wait to see the next ones that he puts together. Thank you so much, Ben. And uh, and and lastly, as always, we want to thank Kay Alatrachi, who in all likelihood has not listened to this episode. But uh, I actually I actually just messaged Kay's about the flies in in my uh, in, in my twenty seconds to live episode because he's uh, of all the people I know will be the most critical of how I did it. All right. Well, uh, I, I can't wait to uh, hear what his, his criticism has to say about uh, your flies. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, uh, Ben, uh, where can people find you? Uh, please uh, just go to benrockonline.com. You can see some of my work, but more importantly, all my social medias and all that stuff is down at the bottom. Feel free to connect with me. I'm on all of the main ones. I even recently started uh, uh, I, I started using TikTok. Uh, I'm, I would be you lying. did not. I would be lying if I said that I understood anything about what I'm looking at because I'm a Gen X person and TikTok was not made for me. But uh, but I was like, you know, I know, you know, a lot of a lot of people I know are on here. I might as well at least see what this TikTok is about. I haven't made one yet. I haven't. I don't suspect I will ever. But I figured I should know something about it. Yeah, here, here I'm mocking you and then immediately smash cut to 24 weeks later and I'm on TikTok. I know you're, know. you're, 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 you're fussing over the, in, you know, the, the, the interface the like, oh yes. God, how do I get my video up on TikTok? I mean, you know, we probably could put some cinematography podcast stuff up, up there. I don't know how much it will appeal to the 19 year olds who prop, populate most of it. Uh, no, no chance for me. I, I think that, I think the TikTok uh, ship has sailed. You know, uh, I, I gotta say you can find me over at most of the usual sort of places too. Although the one I seem to use the most is <laughs> these days is, is either uh, Facebook or maybe LinkedIn. Although, uh, people did reach out to me on both Instagram and LinkedIn, uh, after our last show and several people did. And I've, I've had, you know, a, a half dozen conversations. So yeah, if you uh, use those things and you want to reach out, go ahead and find me there. I'm, I'm happy to uh, engage and offer any advice that I can. And I'm happy to uh, talk trash about whatever it is that we're talking trash about. Probably yeah, politics. Ben and, loves talking trash. Oh, it's all I do. Anyway, well, thank you so much. And we will see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.